Hi, I'm Cheryl and Fenn. Hello, this is Christabel. Hello, this is Michael Horse. Do you enjoy listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the podcast? Have you picked up our book yet? Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. That has over 100 cast and crew who have contributed to this book. And it's, I think people really love it. I mean, we also have community commentary where a lot of the community have participated in this. It's just a great book. We recommend you pick it up at bluerosemag.com. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. Hi, I'm Harley Payton, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. Hi, Brian. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. You know, it's uh, October. And you know what that means. It means it's Mark Frost Month. Yes. We've declared it. It's Mark Frost Month. Uh, The whole month, we will be celebrating Mark Frost. It'll be a tribute to Mark Frost. We're going to have interviews, conversations. It's going to be a great time. Special guests. Special guests, all related to Mark Frost. And I did want to name this... Frosttober. So yes, if, if you, <laughs> I have many names, but none of them are good. If you think if you think Brian's name is better, <laughs> and you let us know, we can change it, and we can be a Frosttober. Um, but I'm just simple. It's just Mark Frost, Frost month. month. I know, but I like you know yes. stupid corny names. <laughs> got Mark from Deer Meadow Radio Podcast. Hey, Mark. Hey, guys. How you doing? So I want to talk for a second about your podcast. Your, your podcast is one of my favorite Twin Peaks podcasts right now. Thank uh, you, man. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. Like, I th- what was it? How many episodes did you do before you even got to the pilot of Twin Peaks? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> was it like five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, unlike you guys, we're on a monthly schedule right now. I don't know how you guys do it. We were talking a little bit earlier. The weekly grind. You guys are amazing. But yeah, I do a, a monthly episode. That's that's what we aspire to. The idea we had was something to do with like uh, kind of like news segments in, mm. in a podcast, if that makes any sense. Not exactly, but you know, talking through stuff like that and focusing on say the Black Lodge and just do an episode on that. You know, mm. get all the stuff together. Get you know, maybe have some other people chime in. That was the rough idea. Even though I wasn't gonna do the episode by episode watch, I thought, well, let's start with the pilot at least. Do an episode on that before we you know freak everybody out with these side tangents that we get to, you know. The problem I had with the pilot was it's it's literally the piece of 
television or, or movies or what have you that I've seen the most of in my life. Like I, I've watched it. I, you know, I don't keep track, but dozens of times, you know, throughout my life. So I'm like, what do I have to say about the pilot at this point? You know, I'm just going to do one episode first month, knock it off and then move into these other kind of areas to look at. But I was a little apprehensive. I didn't think I had anything really new to say. So I started digging around, you know, um, looking for inspirations for the pilot, other things you could kind of talk about. And there's so much out there. It's, mm. I mean, it's amazing. October, we are celebrating Mark Frost. We're calling it Mark Frost Month. And one of my favorite episodes you did was Who Killed Hazel Drew? According to Frost, it was his initial inspiration for the whole dead body, dead girl at the lake, which is Laura Palmer. Joel had mentioned one time, Joel Bacco had mm-hmm. brought up that Mark Frost had a summer home and there was a murder there and maybe that was the inspiration for Laura Palmer. And that's all I knew. And I'd seen the same kind of quote Joel had seen here and there, very vague, you know. But at the same time, it sticks in your head because it's like, mm. oh, wait a second, this is kind of the start of thing here, right? And he just kind of, you know, brushes it off real quick and you didn't really hear uh, Lynch say that much about it. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was just something filed away, I guess, when I saw it. And then starting the show up, uh, was looking for inspirations for the pilot. I, you know, I, I wanted to kind of put a fresh spin on it. And I did an episode on early Lynch Frost, unproduced work, Marilyn Monroe and stuff like that. Mm. And then was, was actually just going to package all that together if I could find anything on this, on this, uh, Mark Frost story. And if not, just, you know, throw it in there as another, kind of inspiration but um yeah just spend one weekend kind of really looking into it and i think there were the thing was there were two or three different sources uh originally for this in a you know separate interviews that frost had done in reflections i think the usc retrospective Mm. was one inspiration for laura's death and the image uh there's a i have a place on a little lake uh where i spend the summers in upstate new york and a young woman was murdered there at the turn of the 20th century, 19th century. And I'd heard stories about this all through my growing up because she supposedly haunted this area of the lake. And um, so that was kind of where Laura came from. And then maybe one from like years ago, something like that. Um, and they each had, you know, as someone tells a story a little bit, <laughs> different information each time. And uh, he had mentioned in one, it was just a, a ghost story of this girl, you know, very vague. Mm. And maybe in the Reflections book is where he added a name and, and mentioned the summer home and 30 miles outside of something. And those kinds of details, I'm like, wait a second, you know, here's, <laughs> here's something you can work with. Mm. And yeah, like this, just, you know, with Google these days, just basically one Saturday, just kind of went to town on this um, to see if there was anything there. And originally, I think the impression was it was Frost had heard a ghost story mm. um, from his grandma, something like that. So you're, I think I even started with that, just looking for ghost stories in New York, you know, with the name or the, the girl, you know, who drowned around the time he said he said, uh, turn of the century, he had also mentioned. Mm. You see Frost in these interviews, he's, you know, he's even kind of hedging and hauling, saying, I think it was, you know, late. 19th, early 20th. So he's giving you kind of stuff to work with, but you mm. got to kind of <laughs> <laughs> you know, do some work. So the, I tried the ghost story angle. You know, I'm not necessarily into that per se. So that was a whole wide open world. And, they, you know, you'd be surprised how many ghost societies in New York there are, basically. Mm. And 
all kinds of journals and stuff. And I find something, I'm like, eh, maybe this is a dead girl. <laughs> you know, all right, we'll, we'll save that and keep going. And uh, yeah, just basically a big investigation. That was a dead end. So I used, um, we had the, the name Hazel Gray. And, the, you know, you can Google that with everything. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, that's right. That's what Mark Frost was saying. Her name was Hazel Gray. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, and even in one of the interviews, he's kind of like, or something like that, after he mm. said it, you know, so it was like, ah, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a caveat there. So I did all this. I, I did Google Maps because he kind of located, uh, he said it was a small town, I think outside of Albany, by like 30 miles or something like that. So I'm on Google Maps, you know, basically with a protract, you know, a compass or whatever, trying to, hmm. all right, it's in this, it's in this circle radius. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and then you know, fall fall asleep from that. I'm like, oh, this this is probably the town. And then I find some murder there, and I'm like, eh, you know, or or it was a suspicious death, but not a murder. But yeah, I spent my wife's like, what what's this guy doing upstairs? You know, for hours and hours <laughs> uh, on end, basically. Yeah, and all these different angles. Um, you know, you know the thing with Google, you, you you just change the search a little bit, change the time period, different databases, different search engines. Mm. Eventually, I came back to what we said there was the name where he said, I think it was Hazel Gray. Mm. So I took, took a look at that, thought about that, and I'm like, well, if he's remembering something, it would probably be Hazel, hmm. not Gray. Because, I mean, you just think about it, Gray is just kind of not memorable by definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I took that out of the equation, and I can't remember exactly the combination, but it was Hazel, dead girl, you know, dead body, something, something. But once I took out the Gray, that was kind of, I think she's doing it, and it was not Hazel, Gray, it was Hazel Drew, very mm. similar. And once then, that was basically the Rosetta Stone because once I found one thing, then it was just like, it just came pouring in. Wow. Um, it was, this thing was, you know, they say it a lot of times, but this was kind of at the time, the crime of the century. And it was reported nationwide, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, out in the Midwest. And this all occurred in New York, a uh, small town outside of New York. Kills Pond is the scene of the crime, and it is outside of Albany. That was it. Oh, see, and I've been following Twin Peaks, of course, for over 25 years, and I've never heard anybody come up with this. And like, it's I, pretty that's, interesting. That's an amazing find, Mark. I mean, it really is something that you well, were able to put this together. Yeah, it's funny, Ben, because I think there was this kind of uh, wilderness period for Twin Peaks fandom, and I'm sure you kind of, you know, after a while, you're yeah, like, okay. I'm the same way, yeah. <laughs> We've done everything. Right. And then, so there was a, there was a period there where you know, I wasn't looking at anything. There wasn't wrapped in plastic and right. all that. But, you know, more interviews were accumulating over this time. And then, of course, the Internet, you know. Mm. Now, you know, now I have a little nugget. I don't have to go to the uh, the city archives. I just Google it, you right. know. And, uh, with, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think that would have been possible, really. True. It actually really drew me in because, you know, Lynch even talked about it. He said they came up with an image of a dead girl. That's what he remembers about it. He doesn't remember probably all this, uh, the hateful Drew thing. Because Mark Frost barely remembered it, really, where it came from. Mm. But when you get into the story, I said there's this town did have strange characters, and he kind of spent his summers there. So, you know, thing, small towns are small towns kind of thing. And 
when you have a murder like that, and, and it, it was never solved. It was covered in the press for at least a month from the records that I found, and twists and turns like you wouldn't believe. Like, um, I mean, you know, you watch Twin Peaks, James is the suspect for the first <laughs> couple episodes. It's the same thing, you know, there's a farmhand, and this is all in, it's not a history book that you're piecing together uh, newspaper reports, but, yeah. you know, for the first couple of days, this guy's uh, the suspect, and then the shady uncle, <laughs> you know, what's his story? <laughs> and no, no one was ever, you know, found guilty, but just like Twin Peaks, uh, the characters, you know, they all had something going on. Mm. That once just kind of unearthed it, you know, basically was my take on it. That's really cool. It really is something. I love that. I do. I just really love that you were able to discover this. And like I said, I mean, I don't know anybody else who ever knew this. And I even Mark Frost doesn't know this. I mean, like, you've got. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think he mentioned. So again, there was uh, two or three different interviews. And in one, he actually said, and this was where I think maybe I leaped from the ghost story to, all right, let's, let's just look for a dead girl. Mm. Um, he mentioned at some point he did go to the archives, the, the, the town hall or something, and did some digging, you know, yeah. 30, 40 years ago, whenever. That, that was another thing. So, you know, again, you know, this, this day and age, I don't have to do anything. You just get on Google and... And, you know, go at it. So. Right. Hazel Drew, The Origins of Laura Palmer. I mean, that's pretty awesome. That is awesome. That's it. And and uh, I think it was episode three, uh, in some ways my most hated episode because I had major audio problems. I think I ended up having to re-record the whole episode. It was almost the end of, of uh, Dear Metal Radio, you know. <laughs> but I just went back and listened to it, and uh, I think it turned out okay. The, the first, the news is still kind of, <laughs> yeah. But if you can get past that, it's an interesting story. And really, I meant to, um, like I said, it was in the paper for weeks and weeks. So the first episode, I think I covered. You know, I did like an intro kind of, and then I covered. I don't know, maybe the first week, something like that. So mm. I. It's in my mind. I'm, I'm uh, planning to get back to it and, and getting new listeners. And I've had some people kind of poking around, uh, asking about it. So stay tuned on that. Just, uh, uh, I think I somewhat jokingly in the episode, I'm like, you know what? Let's let's file this goddamn murder. You know, <laughs> it's been a hundred years. There you go. And then I got busy. I got busy with a wise guy or something else, yeah. and uh, haven't got back to it yet. But who knows? Maybe maybe we'll get to it. Maybe we'll put that. We'll put it down. Yeah, I really love your podcast, though. I love the detail and and the research that you put into each episode. And you really you have you've got one theme. You're you're not focused on like uh, going to every episode of Twin Peaks. You're really focused on here's the theme. Here's what I want to talk about this month. And I think it's it's just great. It's it's it, that's it, awesome. Yeah. Some people on Twitter think we're in competition here because uh, they do. <laughs> no, I think it's really Christian there. Mark, you did it first. You had the access guide. He, he focused on the access guide, and then we did an access guide. And then I think you, you just had a follow-up. Oh, no, you didn't have a follow-up. I'm waiting for it. You tricked me. I yeah. thought that you were going to have a follow-up. <laughs> you, you actually got... I set you up totally, man. You, it was you, all on you. <laughs> I was like, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Tune in next month. <laughs> you had a... And sure, part one is aired and part two is coming soon. Uh, and that's, that's really the access guide one. So, yeah, it's, it's been fun. I, and maybe Christian's on to something, but I think it's 
it's fun uh, sibling rivalry, if yeah, anything, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just listened to you guys, uh, the Harley, it's amazing, you know, and I don't know if I would have, you know, thought of tracking down Richard Saul Worman, so I think it's it's awesome, uh, the back and forth, and you know what? I may not have tracked down Ken Sure if I didn't hear Richard Saul Worman. <laughs> that you, you inspired me, your show inspired me to say, you know what, I want, to, I want more information about this Access Guide. I think you probably said something on your show that it was like, there's got to be more information about who wrote this and how was it yeah. produced. And so I think listening to your show made me say, okay, there's this – all that is is on the binder, it says Warman. I don't know who this Warman guy is, but he's got credit yeah. He's got credit with Lynch and Frost. I got to at least research it. I really thought – I thought maybe he just owned the company that made the uh, Access Yeah, guy. exactly. I was really nervous doing this show. Yeah, that was a rough one. Yeah. I was ruffled because I was like, I'm going to do this and be like, what was your involvement with the book? And he's going to say, well, I didn't really have anything to do with it. I just, you know, I'm just my company. So, and then to find out, like, oh, yeah, I wrote the book. My, my producer, I was like, what? But that really had to yeah. do, yeah, had yeah, to do with you, really Mark, cool. though. Really, you inspired us to to, to research this. Oh, awesome. I, let's keep it going. Uh, I, like I said, <laughs> I listened to your Harley Payton today. Ken Shear is coming. You'll see. I think we're we're kind of like putting together a puzzle almost on this uh, this access guy because you know there's more stuff to come. But uh, uh, I can't wait. I, if you've been listening to mine, I've kind of put out some ideas there, and you know not all mine, but about the the old effort, the access guy, the mm. secret history, the relationship there. Yeah. And I basically, you know, when I got Ken uh, on the on the phone. You'll see the second half. I basically put out everything there, and uh, and he responded. So, Mark, where can the people find out more information about you? Keyword is Dear Metal Radio. Usually, I think it's one word, but that Twitter, Facebook, Gmail dot com, and the website is I think Dear Metal Radio dot com. Uh, iTunes, Dear Metal Radio, Fire for monthly. Sometimes we're late, and sometimes we have an extra episode. And with everything that's going on, I think we're uh, not quite at your guys' rate, but uh, we might be putting out for the next couple you know, weeks or so, a couple, couple bonus episodes, maybe. Cool. I'll take anything, though. If, if it's only once a month, I'm happy. It's really good <laughs> podcast. You're very thorough, and you put a lot of time into it in the research, and it's worth uh, the wait if once a month. Well, that means a lot, and whatever Christian says, I do appreciate that. Christian! <laughs> 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 uh, cool. Well, thank uh, you, Mark. All right, guys. Do you remember Candle Cove? He used to just sit, just watching the static. This show, it can make people do things. Kids will see it, just like we did. Kids are hurting someone! Everything that's happening now... <laughs> this is just the beginning. Harley Payton. You know, the great thing about Mark is that you knew that if you nailed something and really got it right, it's not like he was going to rewrite it because he felt like it later that day. And so you, and, and as a writer on that show, it was really a good feeling to know that that collaboration was sort of active and, and a good one um, because there are plenty of showrunners who just, they just rewrite everything because they have to. And, and they sort of can't help themselves. It's just their process. Mm. And it doesn't make sense to them unless it's come sort of out of their keyboard but Mark was never like that, and so it was, it was such a pleasure to work for him because, again, you knew that your best work had a pretty good chance of getting to the screen. That's cool. Yeah. Before the second season started, 
you know, he said, look, I want everyone to bring in their ideas for story arcs and all mm. of this stuff. And so I came in with this thing based on the Inman Diaries, which is, you know, Harold, the mm. kind of recluse who doesn't leave his place. And, you know, I just started pitching that out to him. And he said, that's great. We're doing that. That's awesome. Right. I mean, it's just that he... You know, he just, you know, that's something or Nadine's super strength. Which <laughs> some people are some some people are less fond of. But I mean, it's nonetheless, it's you know, it was that way that he was really good at identifying what he thought was going to work or not work. Yeah. And, you know, we had sort of a, a mind meld going anyway. So but it was but those discussions were usually about more general things than about a scene or a line of dialogue. I mean, if something needed to be changed, he would just change it. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, it came to, when it comes to Night Nadine, it was kind of already established in the first season that she had strength. She could bend her her exercise machine back. So it, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, that she much, did. It wasn't that yeah, much of did. a stretch. That's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. that's something. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I, and it was fun, and, and I love that character, and she did such a great job. Mm. It was. I mean, there there really weren't many characters on that show that I didn't really have a great deal of affection for. I loved writing, so that's you know that was always a pleasure. It's awesome. Yeah, she. she uh, her, I'm hoping we'll get something in season three because to me it was a very sad ending for her, and I'm and yeah. I want to know yeah. what's going to happen in season three. Can you tell me about Mark? I mean, I've known him now for you know for all these years. It's amazing just how how directed he is. He has a kind of inner confidence mm. that that I tend I tend to be all over the place, and and Mark is a very steady ship, if you will. I mean, he's they talk about. I mean, I think this Gerald called Dick Diver in in uh, Tender's Night. Um, a man of perfect repose, and there's just something about having that calmness and that ability to navigate things, and even while being enormously creative. And I think of Mark as being sort of like that. that mm. He's that he's that he's you know it's it he's he's who you want as the captain of your ship, right? I mean, you want him at the helm because he's going to get you through whatever waters you need to go through. And so, as someone to work for, and as someone who became a very good friend, you know that was a, a great time in my life, and he was obviously a really important part of it. I'm I'm always impressed with you and the rest of the production how you had these multiple storylines that you guys could juggle all of them and it seems like Mark Frost was able to do that partly probably through a Hill Street Blues that he had that background. Of- yep. Yeah, Mark had the television background that actually when I think of the people who were there then none of us had. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. Bob had done anything prior to that. I mean, I may may have written a pilot, but I, yeah, no one really had that experience. He was the one who had it and so the ability to juggle stories like that um, and also to juggle, I mean, to work with David too. I mean, that was all very important. So, mm. you know, he, that was, you know, that was really integral to, to the show's success. But I saw a video where Mark Frost said that maybe it was a couple of years before Twin Peaks that he had a near death experience. I think he was golfing and he, he almost died. And, 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 and in that interview, he was kind of talking about fear that he didn't let fear in as much anymore because of that experience that he had. And it kind of made me think of that wow. whole storyline in in the last season of Twin Peaks where it was talking oh. about fear and love and about that. I don't know if you had ever heard that before at all, Harley. No, I've, I, that's, no, that's amazing. I've never heard that story, but that's what I mean about the steady hand. I mean, he is, you know, he doesn't, you know, we all deal with, there's, there's a fearfulness that we can bring to any situation mm-hmm. and sometimes more overtly than not. But, but yeah, he is not someone who I would ever describe as being afraid of pretty much anything. You know, he uh-huh. always seemed to know what he wanted. He always seemed to know what he wanted, and and was very good about, but about getting it in the most creative way possible. But that's interesting. I mean, that explains a lot. Hmm. What do you think is his writing style? I mean, you guys were close on scripts. I mean, I know it only through Twin Peaks. I mean, hmm. I remember picking up one of his the first novels that he wrote, where he could really kind of stretch out 
because he's such a good writer. Um, but for Twin Peaks, look, I mean, his voice, I mean, David and Mark together, that was the voice that launched that show. So, you know, it wasn't so much, I mean, there's, you don't really critique it in that sense. I mean, it's just, it was the perfect, he managed to hit that voice every time. And it wasn't like you ever read something that he did or had rewritten and go, oh, this is a writer, you know, I could do this better or whatever. I mean, you know, that was, those voices came right out of him. So, mm. you know, Mark is a really, he's a really deft writer and someone who could write, you know, and all all kinds of stories, and he's really fucking funny. So that helps too. Um, nice. It's interesting that you know we, we after this uh, Twin Peaks series, we have uh, David Lynch directing uh, Firewalk with Me and basically making Firewalk with Me, and then to begin the new series, you know, twenty five years later, we have Mark starting it off with this new book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks. I think yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's just his voice. I mean, we don't have anybody. You know, David Lynch isn't co-writing this with him, so it's it'll be interesting to see the book and and see uh, pure. Mark Frost's voice in this. Yeah, yes, I think that's true, and I think, although I think in this case there was, you know, the kind of coordination between them that there wasn't, obviously, for Firewalk and Me, Mm. and so the nice thing is, yes, Mark was always going to be the one to write the book, but David and Mark wrote all the scripts together, and David directed every one of them. I mean, Mm. that seems like a pretty good division. That seems like a pretty good division of labor to me. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harley. I'm so I'm so pumped for your new show. I can't wait to check it out. Yes. Sure, guys. Thank you. We'll be talking about the show. I hope you like it. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome, guys. Okay, we'll talk soon. So Joel, do you want to talk about Mark Frost and maybe some of his earlier stuff? And uh... when I first watched Twin Peaks, uh, I guess uh, 2008. Um, obviously, I was watching it for for because it was the David Lynch thing. So I'd mm. seen Mulholland Drive and um, Elephant Man and Blue Velvet, and you know that was the reason I was watching. But I was also aware that as a TV show, he probably wasn't like involved all the time or with every episode or even like day to day because. You know, um, I think a lot of times when, when directors are involved with TV, they're usually like, and then they kind of take back seeing somebody else doing a lot of, and that's kind of the case today. Mm. Um, with with some of the directors, I know, I think, didn't David Fincher do just the first episode of House of Cards and that was it? Yeah, and of course, I think says so. He did the first episode of Boardwalk Empire, but other people manage the storytelling and, you know, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their case, they don't really have any real involvement. I don't think Scorsese's really touching base with the people. I don't even know if it's still on, but uh, Michael Mann, you know, sort of gave his signature to Miami Vice and set the look and everything mm. like that, but he never direct. I don't think he ever directed a single episode. Mm. So, I mean, typically when film directors get involved with TV, they're not the ones running the show. Now, Lynch actually was more involved than a lot of people. He directed, you know, six of the 30 episodes, mm. and, you know, he was a little more hands-on than some people, but also not quite as hands-on as I think people thought he was in like the, the press, where it was like assumed that he was behind every episode. Whereas it mm. seems like if he wasn't directing, he kind of wasn't there a lot of the time. Mm. You know, like Tim Hunter says, "Oh, he wasn't there for the episode where Leland died. He never showed up on set." So that was because he was preparing his own episode. As I watched the 
the series, I was curious, like, who's this guy, Mark Frost? Because it says mm. created by David Lynch and Mark Frost together, you know? I don't really know about Mark Frost. He's a TV guy. I didn't have much experience in TV. At that point, I was very much a film guy. So the second time I watched it, I was watching which episodes did he write, which ones did he direct. You know, he directed the season one finale. And kind of piecing together from that, okay, well, maybe this is more what Frost is all about versus Lynch. And kind of like reading the tea leaves that way. And then later as I read books about the making of Twin Peaks or Lynch films, um, it sort of gives you a little more insight into who did what. It eventually became apparent to me that it really was a collaboration between Mm -hmm. two people um, and really interestingly with two very distinct worldviews. And I think that was striking and not something that people mention a lot because they have obvious overlap. They have a sort of offbeat sense of humor that they share, you know, certain interests. And they really seem to have seen eye to eye in the pilot. Like that's a very complimentary piece of writing. I think for the rest of the show, there was a real tension there between the two visions. Mm -hmm. And at times they were very wildly different. And one of the best books that kind of helped me to hone in on that was uh, Martha uh, Milkinson's book, um, passion of David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Now she's pretty critical of Frost, and she's sympathetic to an extent. Like she says, you know, because people would dismiss to the because if from film, it's like, oh, the film director, and then a TV writer. Oh, well, you know, the TV writer must not have had as much to say or something. It's just because people kind of, especially back then, condescended to to TV. But she says, you know, listen, like Mark Frost, not a hack. He's a talented writer, and this and that. But she doesn't really seem to like what he values or what he uh, kind of brings to Twin Peaks. She she pointed me to the to sort of the differences that they had in her book from a sort of a more critical standpoint of Frost. But I, I, I kind of dug into it, and I see a lot to appreciate what he brought to it. And a lot of authors, I think, are, are sort of critical of Frost's input, if they're, especially if they're writing like a Lynch biography or analysis, because mm. um, it is somewhat different from Lynch's. Um, and, you know, I have critiques of Frost and, and of Lynch, some of Lynch's, you know, dis- decisions as well. But I think in a way, even the contradictions kind of complement one another. Um, and I think that tension between two fairly different visions is, is what makes Twin Peaks as fascinating as it is. Definitely. Yes. I, I definitely yeah. agree with you. And it's interesting he's talking about Mark Frost as a director. I thought he did a great job with that uh, the season finale. And he went on to do uh, Storyville. But, I mean, he really hasn't done a lot of directing. But I think he's mm-hmm. a decent yeah. director. I think he did a good job on what he did do. And he and he also did direct the Invitation to Love segments yeah. as yeah. well. So, and, and he did I that. enjoyed Storyville. I, I rented it from Netflix. It's on uh, the DVD. Um, unfortunately, God knows why it's not widescreen. Like, so, Hmm. you know, it's a pan and scan version, so you don't really get to see the full visual. In the world of campaign promises and political payoffs, a candidate's private moment can quickly become public record. I want the tape. The candidate, the seduction, the murder. It all happens in Storyville. James Spader, Joanne Wally Kilmer, Jason Robards, directed by Mark Frost, Storyville, rated R. It's very absorbing, local color, kind of, uh, I think it's Louisiana politics, central character who's like the son of a political dynasty, and he's trying to solve, I believe, I think it was a murder case, uh, exposing this political corruption that, you know, may involve people he knows and stuff like that. So it's very, it's it's a very absorbing thriller. Ironically, it came out the same week as Firewalk with me. Hmm. And um, 
it's hard to find numbers on how well it did. Like the numbers I found were really low, like suggesting that it was released in like four theaters or something because oh, wow. it was like under a million bucks. So I'm wondering if that's accurate or if it actually did better. It, it certainly wasn't, wasn't like, you know, a hit. I don't think it got very wide release. And I'm not sure if Frost has talked about that at all, but I'd be curious to know about kind of what happened with that. Because it seemed like it could be like a popular, you know, thriller with James Spader. Great cast, yeah. amazing cast. Jason Robards is in it. Um, a lot of people from Twin Peaks, Piper Laurie, Michael Parks, John Renault is the villain in it. Mm. Um, so it's, it's very colorful, well-written, looks great, um, even, you know, when it's chopped up on DVD. So uh, I don't know what happened with that movie. I will say this. It got much uh, better reviews than Firewalk With Me. And mm-hmm. actually, some people drew an explicit comparison. Um, uh, Roger Ebert, specifically, in his review of Storyville, takes like a whole paragraph to like knock David Lynch and say, you know, Mark Frost was the co-creator of Twin Peaks. But unlike Lynch, he doesn't laugh at his characters and his genre. And <laughs> he takes pride in telling a good story and not just condescending to the... Like, it was like this really sour grapes interlude huh. in the, you know, the a positive interview. So, <laughs> and, and also, um, the same week Time Magazine ran, they just ran capsules on um, the films. I don't think they did a proper review of uh, Firewalk With Me, but I think they had a, I think they had a, a critical capsule and uh, the Storyville capsule was like positive and, the, and of course because everyone hated it the Firewalk With Me one was negative mm. I, I think um, Keith Phipps wrote about that in the AV Club yeah I didn't but, realize uh, I didn't realize that they that the, both those movies came out at the same time because I mean Mark Frost yeah. so he's Mark Frost is directing that during the second yep. season that lull that, that part wow. where he, he went away and I and well I don't think he's directing it at that point he's doing pre-production uh, but the production begins around the same time as the finale and I think that's why Piper Laurie even though she was scripted to be in the finale mm. she couldn't actually be there because I, I think that's why because they had started shooting interesting um, Storyville yeah so and, and I think he told Brad that around the last couple episodes he just like you know, oversaw it and was like, I'm gone. I got to go. My movie's about to shoot. So he was doing a lot of pre-production, I think, during that mid-season stretch. Mm. And like, especially a big film like that with, uh, you know, Shot Town South and everything. It's like, and it was his first film. So, mm. you know, a lot to be done. Oh, and it's shot by Ron Garcia, who shot Firewalk with me as well. Oh, and actually, there's quite a few, quite a few crew members who were on both productions. Uh, Joanna Ray cast it. There, yeah, there was a lot of overlap between Firewalk with Me and Storyville. That's something. Um, I wish I could remember if um, Ron Garcia talked about it. That great, he does a great interview with the American Cinematographers podcast, where he talks mostly about the Twin Peaks pilot, but he gets into Firewalk with Me too at the end. I can't remember if he brings up Storyville, but yeah, he was on. Uh, they shared a lot of crew. So it's interesting, too, because even though there was kind of Lynch Frost Productions was really falling apart at that point, mm. um, and they were having big disagreements. I mean, <laughs> making a Twin Peaks film, basically, when he was writing that and going forward with it, Frost was in the midst of production on Storyville. So it was almost kind of like a stealth move where it's like, I'm going, you know, I'm here, we're making this prequel, and really, Frost is kind of on his own project, so... Mm. You know, it's like, I I don't know anything about the circumstances other than Frost says he didn't want it to be a prequel and they kind of disagreed. So he didn't really want to be that involved with it. But it's I I haven't heard anybody address the fact that it was going forward in like pre-production and all of that stuff right at the time he was totally absorbed in Storyville. Hmm. So 
Yeah. They were weirdly out of sync in that way. Also going on around this time was, I think it was June uh, 1992, they did On the Air TV show. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting. So you have you have these uh, these creators uh, doing their own movies, and then right yeah. around the same time, they're also they're still obligated, I think, to do another TV show for ABC, and it ends up being On the mm-hmm. Air, which, am I right? It was like only three episodes might have aired? I think there was, there was only a few. Yeah, they only aired three, and there were seven shots. I think. Wow. So the last four were never aired. And it was available on VHS. I think I did watch that all was of them. A, Yeah. That was the ignominious end until, you know, uh, 20-something years later of Lynch Frost Productions. And what are you, what's your thoughts on uh, Mark Frost in his new book, The, the Secret History of Twin Peaks? <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing what it is. I think I pre-ordered it. I, I love the fact that it's very much in the tradition of Twin Peaks books of being a found object, mm. which all of the other Twin Peaks book books are, all, all three of them, you know. None of them are like sort of omniscient third-person narrative stories. They're all told, for, they're, they're, they're presented as if, Hey, we found this document, these tapes, or this diary, or you know, here's a here's a guide mm. that the mayor has, you know, commissioned for his town. Like they exist within this sort of framework, which is very sort of clever and engaging. And I, so I love that this book is going to follow that format. Um, I don't. It's funny, and this goes for the show as well. At this point, I almost don't have like expectations. I'm just mm. kind of curious to see what it brings. Like, I don't know that I was ever as like, oh, God, I gotta see this right now. Like, you know, there were points where I was like, Okay, I'm ready for this to come along. But like right now, I'm just kind of like, Okay, when it comes, it comes, and I'll, I'll, I look forward to it. But I'm not like sweating eagerly in anticipation. I'm just kind of like. Yeah, I think that's a good place to be because... You won't be let down, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Theoretically, yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben. This week... What do we got, Brian? <laughs> Brian's got paper. I got paper. It was, it was faxed to me on our fax number. No, we don't have a fax number. Um, so we got an email from Dave. Uh, Dave emails us like you can do at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com. Please send us those emails. We'll hopefully read it on the air if it's good. Um, so Dave writes... Another great podcast. Now, he's regarding our Wild at Heart podcast we did with Francine, which we got a a lot of great feedback from. Mm. So uh, Dave and others all seem to like it, especially on Reddit. Uh, A lot of positive um, comments and on Facebook as well. Awesome. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. There was a lot of behind the scenes, that that podcast uh, with Francine. There was a thunderstorm coming in. I don't know if you can hear it on the show. So it's like you could hear it on her end of the phone, right. and then when after we're done, it's here. Yes, it just something? went through New York and comes to Connecticut, and it was kind of cool. I kind of liked it. <laughs> was it rude? Should we have told her to get off the phone? Like, oh, I know she didn't want to though. She and it was kind of cool. It was fitting for that yeah. movie. And Francine brought a lot of insight. I mean, it's funny. Like you know, we do a lot of preparation, and we never ask our guests to do anything. But like Francine really, really knew what she was talking about. I mean, it is her favorite Lynch film. So yeah, I, yeah. And that's what I like when we have a guest on for the films. It's a lot of fun. It I is. I think it's like my favorite, one of my favorite things. 
I look forward to it all week. I watch the movie. I get excited. I do my research. It's fun. It he, he goes on, I remember seeing it for the first time in a small theater in Pullman, Washington when I was in college. The projectionist had the screen crooked somehow, and I remember wondering if it was supposed to be that way, thinking it was an odd Lynchian thing, <laughs> but then he soon corrected it. And this reminded me of Mulholland Drive. When Mulholland Drive was done, half of it was for a TV pilot and mm-hmm. half of it was a movie. So half was on film and then half was done by the, for the 4 by 3 standard for your TV screen. And supposedly, um, David, this was on IMDb, that when the movie was sent out to projectionists, it came with a letter from David Lynch mm. saying... Please lower the projection. There was some sort of specifications he wanted it to because when he did it, it just came off weird. Hmm. And maybe he he needed it to be a certain way. He has done that before where he's very particular on how he wants to be showed. Even like you look at some of his DVDs, they'll they'll give you instructions on how you should best watch the DVD. No chapter select in Mohan Drive? Was that the movie with no chapter select? He, and he, he, if he has control over it, he doesn't ever want chapters. St- yeah, select. selects. And yeah, because he he believes you should. I mean, it's funny that a director is going to force you on how you're going to watch it, but he if if it have it his way, he wants you to watch it all the way through. He doesn't want you stopping and going to it. Being people who like films, though, it, it would be nice to be able to select a scene that you just want to watch again yeah. after you've seen it. But, yeah, and yeah. then yeah, I think Mohan Drive didn't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be nice. But maybe he's loosened up a little bit. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially, you know, his other films that get really long. Dave goes on, I remember almost feeling like it was going to throw up from the first scene when he bashes the guy's head in. Mm. A Nicolas Cage, a sailor, bashes in that guy. And it was kind of grotesque and so brutal right. that first couple minutes. I didn't even know what was going on. And all of a sudden, he just starts bashing it right. and just blood everywhere. Well, the guy had a knife and he was defending himself. That Yes. Yeah. It wasn't It wasn't murder. It was manslaughter. Because remember, the whole gag was, yeah. you're a murderer. No, I was protecting myself. <laughs> I love that movie. Very visceral, over-the-top, passionate movie. Now, David wrote, did it come out before Pulp Fiction? Uh, Pulp Fiction came out in 1994 and Wild at Heart came out in 1990. So I kind of feel like it does remind me a lot of Pulp Fiction, and obviously Pulp Fiction came out later. So I'm wondering if Quentin Tarantino had seen this in kind of it did have that feel hmm. like the on the road oddness, and it did play like a Pulp and violent, Fiction, a little yeah, more violent, yeah. violent, over the top violence. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was just that time period, those early '90s, where they had a lot more films that did that. Yeah, you know what? Honestly, nobody's brought in this up. But for me, it reminded me of a very interesting version of Natural Born Killers. Um, I felt like this was almost like a template to Natural Born Killers. And Tarantino wrote that. He wrote. He did. And yeah. Uh, yeah, he wrote Natural Born Killers. And this movie felt like, I'm like, is this going to be like, because it starts off with a murder. And I'm like, mm. are they going to be like Bonnie and Clyde? And start killing people. Right. True it, romance made me a thing too. Wasn't that like a, a yeah, road true. trip kind of? Yeah. Trip, yeah. A lot of people said it reminds them because there was an Elvis thing mm. too. So, yeah, I mean, these movies had this road trip feel with a strain lovers, over top violence, bizarreness, mm. and it was kind of cool. 
you know? Yeah, you do wonder if people are inspired, if other directors get inspired yeah. by other works, or it's just that time of period where it was okay, not okay, but it seemed like everybody was was kind doing of it. was doing it, and yeah. ultraviolet was in. Yeah, it was kind yeah, of, yeah. It was a, a form of expression of the times. Yeah. So Dave goes on. A lot of great films came out of that era, and I totally agree. Mm-hmm. A lot of oh, oh yeah, and it's sort of what I think is missing in today's. Cineplex right now. Oh, you're such an old man. <laughs> I know. Honestly, this past summer was kind of a lame summer for movies, in my opinion. Yeah. But you know what movie had this feel? The Hateful Eight. Hmm. Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Yeah. I saw it twice in the theater. I haven't I seen loved it, it, but I think I've been ruined the ending, but I still want to watch that movie. You have to. I have to. It was such a good movie. Over the top violence, twists and turns, mm. fun, and a great uh, movie experience. It looks you know? good. I oh, want to see it. I'm hope. I, you know what? I, I got to put a note to myself that this weekend I will watch. You should it. see it. Yeah. Um, so he says. Speaking of projectionist fails, I remember seeing Napoleon Dynamite for the first time, and the projection had the whole frame on the screen, where you could see all the microphones, all mm-hmm. the boom mics yeah. hanging from the top uh, that were supposed to be cropped out. I thought at the time, was this supposed to be this way? How unusual! I mean, it's a comedy, so you you never yeah. know. All the mics were different colors. Then someone told the projectionist to fix it, and he did. I didn't know a lot about the job of a projectionist, but I thought that was funny. In high school, I remember seeing movies. I saw trailers where I saw the boom mic Mm. peeking out. You know, Dave's email made me uh, realize, and I've never never seen it again, Mm. but also we're not dealing with film anymore. It's all digital. Yeah. It's it's all digital boxes. But back then, I guess... The projectionist had to uh, frame it up because there were there was a crop that wasn't cropped out all the way up top mm-hmm. that you could see the boom mics. So this is a very common thing. I've heard other stories. Yeah. Have you ever seen the boom mic before up top? Yeah, I have too. I, I is don't it know. Weird? I don't know if if it's an accident on the director's part or if it really is when it gets processed that it gets reformatted for uh, for the screen. It's yeah. hard to say. And we st- we do still have film. I mean, most of it is digital, but I believe Twin Peaks is going to be on film. And yeah. Stuff. No, I'm just saying in the movies. Okay. Like you go to movie theater now. It's all digital projectors. It, it's a d- digital projector right. and. It's so sad. Cause I re- do you remember the day? I remember going to the fi- the movies, and I saw The Fifth Element in the middle of the opera scene. I don't know if you saw that film. There's this alien doing the opera, and all of a sudden it starts slowing down, and then all of a sudden the corner of the film catches on fire. Ah. And there was a f- it melted the film, and we could see it on screen. It was so wow. cool. You're Go- talking about film. Yeah. You're talking about film. So in college, so this is 90, I believe this is 94, Pulp Fiction. Is it 94, 95? I yes. should have looked it up. Yeah, Pulp Fiction came out in 94. 94, very good. So I was part of this cinema society. I was part of this club, <laughs> film club and stuff like that. We decided to, it, it, it was when it came out, we decided to buy Pulp Fiction or rent it. We, we yes. rented it and we got it on reels and we had a projector. Wow. <laughs> and you had, to, you had, I think we had two projectors going because you, had, you know, one reel would end and, and you'd have y- to switch yes. over to the next yeah. one. So we're watching Pulp Fiction and the reel falls off the projector. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's just, it just falls right off. And I, we actually had to put an intermission. We had to stop. Like, we had a crowd. Like, this was our biggest crowd we ever had because it was still in theaters at the time. And you got film. And we got film wow. at the time. Wow, that's so cool. It was really cool. It was really, But it was still so funny that it fell off and we had to stop it and kind of get it all um, back on. Yeah, the so that, film was a pain in the ass. It's and a pain the in the ass. Projectionists had a tough job because they had multiple films going at once. Yes, you had two reels. 
you had sinking issues. I remember seeing Jackie Brown in the theater. Mm. It was black for 20 minutes with just audio. Mm. Then I remember when I fixed it, the audio was not synced with the film for some strange reason. And I've, I've been to a movie theater where all these weird things would happen. And I kind of miss that. It's mm. kind of funny. Now... I remember when they switched over to digital, Yeah, all the managers at the Cineplex were complaining like they would freeze mm. um, because they didn't have fans. They didn't have circulation up there because with film, yeah. you kept it kind of cool. You're good. With these hard drives, they can overheat and they could freeze. And then if they freeze, you have to reboot them. And guess what? The movie starts back at the beginning, and you have to scrub to oh figure out where God. you are. And yeah. It's a big mess. So it's interesting nowadays. And then do you remember, this might be weird. A lot of people might remember this. You're watching a film, and you see the circle in the corner. That's and that, right. And that meant the reel is going to change. Yes. How cool. And you see that circle. You knew right. the reel was changing. Uh. How cool was that? And now yeah. it's gone. It's gone. I know. It's so we're sad. Old. We're so old. I, I miss <laughs> nobody that. Nobody cares. I know. I know. Nobody cares. But it's kind of cool that projectionists had a tough job and they had to make sure that right. stuff was cropped out. Um, and it's interesting to think that Lynch really did care about his work enough yeah. that he, at times, he would send letters out and say, hey. And I feel like when he when he was when he was actually there, he would go to the projectionist and talk about like, can we have it this way and stuff. And that he shows he really did care about his work. And he, you see that even when he's involved with with the DVD Blu-rays, that he cares very much about the color, uh, the timing, and the editing, and he wants it to be the best quality it can be. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I still I think totally about, agree. And one other thing I was thinking. I mean, this is kind of a different subject, but I still think about you know. The whole European ending, how we got this red room. And this was really tacked on, but like, and he could have just tacked on any old ending if he wanted. He could have yes. just been like, the killer is this. And he could have done like two seconds where he could have been like, oh, it was Jacques Renault the whole time. Yeah. But he went elaborately and created a set for the red room. And he went into this whole big thing because he felt his name was on this. Even though it wasn't for the TV series, he still felt like his name was on it. He's going to give high quality, a, a really yeah. you know, good ending there. Yeah. So you. He's a man who knows his craft and he knows it well. And, and like, he cares about his work. And yeah. He wants, he, you know, everything he does, he puts his whole heart in, into it. And no matter what, the media, medium, yeah. the way he does it too, digital, film. I'm glad he's going back to film. Yeah. That's very cool. So Dave goes on. Anyhow, love the podcast. A great way to bid the time until Twin Peaks gets here. So thank you for that. I'm glad you're listening at work. I find ourselves to be a work-friendly podcast. <laughs> uh, by the way, did you guys invest in that Lynch doc on Kickstarter? When are we going to get our movie? Now, Ben, I know nothing about this, but it's oddly enough that Dave writes this email, and I see online we have the David Lynch, The Art of Life documentary, and that's what he's talking about. One and the same. So it's definitely coming soon. I mean, I think we just... I think we've had a, a few... Uh, Trailers out maybe in the last week or so we one had another wrapped one. in plastic. Yes, which is kind of cool. So yeah, this was a Kickstarter. I did not invest in this. I don't know. It's so funny how I feel like there's gaps in time where I just it, things pass by me. Like I really haven't gotten back into David Lynch and Twin Peaks since we until we got into this podcast. Like I yeah. feel like there was a time where I just lived my life and forgot about everything. So I somehow I missed this Kickstarter that um, I think it started in May of 2012 wow. is when it first started. Um, the play, the goal was to get thirty thousand, and they actually did end up getting one hundred seventy nine thousand five hundred fifty four. So they raised that much money. So that's really cool. And the guy, this guy Jason S, is uh, directing this, uh, putting this this film together. And he worked with Austin Lynch, who is David Lynch's son. That's cool. And they had worked together 
on these interview projects. And so it was just, there was different interviews of, of just average people all around, and they would just do interviews about a person and stuff. So that's, that's where they, cool. they, they work together. And I think Jason S. on his own is now working on this project. And and he has access to David Lynch, which is cool. Yeah, yeah and I don't, so. I'm guessing it's through because of his relationship with Austin Lynch and, and the work they did on these interview projects that Lynch had was involved with as well. That's how it, it worked out. David Lynch, The Art Life, is going to be, next time we're seeing this, will be at um, the BFI London Film Festival. It will be screening on October 9th, 10th, and 11th. So I'm sure eventually we'll be getting this probably in, in Blu-ray or DVD, but it, right now it's yeah. starting at the film festivals. That's awesome. And thank you, Dave, for that email. You gave us a lot to talk about today. Thanks again to Silencio. You can find both their albums on iTunes and Apple Music, CD Baby, Amazon, and more. People can get a hold of us. How? They can get a hold of us through uh, our Gmail at uh, TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. Yes, the Twitter sphere. Most of the time, I'm running Twitter, and most of the time, they they can uh, uh, talk to you through Facebook. Yes, I'm on uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped on Facebook. Uh, we're getting those likes in. Uh, people are commenting. We're having a ball on there. Also, iTunes, get those five star reviews. Leave us comments. It five means st- a lot. It means it so does. much to us that if you if it, it takes five minutes of your time, it, it, write us something, give us those five stars, maybe give us a little feedback. We appreciate it. And it just allows us for me, more people to find us. Mm. You know, uh, a podcast that has more uh, reviews and stuff, it just allows, for some reason, we'll get more exposure. So thank you, everyone who shares us on Facebook and who likes us on Twitter and goes on iTunes. You mentioned that you've overcome, you think, most of your fears of life or of living. How did that happen? Well, um, I I almost died a few years ago, and uh, I mysteriously collapsed while on a golf course, and um, my heart had gone up to, like, 240 beats a minute, and I couldn't breathe and slipped into unconsciousness, and... Um, they never were able to determine exactly why. It was some sort of um, accumulation of um, anxiety or stress or tension or all the all the fears that were weighing on me. And I can remember lying in the ambulance on the way to the the uh, hospital and um, feeling like I was very close to going um, and thinking, if this is it, if this is going to be the end, it's really not so bad. I'm not in pain. I'm, uh, I'm actually quite um, serene in this moment. And if I just take one more step, um, I'll, I'll be out of here. Um, and I didn't do that. I, whatever it is, I, I didn't have an out-of-body experience, but I, I came back. And for some reason, that kind of evaporated the fears. It was like, what else is there to be afraid of? than death and if you if you're not afraid of that um it liberates you from the whole a whole chain of of other fears that i think are connected to that um if you can get to the point where you embrace that idea and um the idea of loss which is an inevitable part of life um i think the rest of your life is fuller and um and is more informed with the value that you get from the moment that you're in because you know it won't be there again 
Um, so, you, you know, I, I, I make an effort to, as much as possible, try to stay in that place. And I, I think I've, my life has been a great deal richer since that moment.